Morning. That's such a pretty song. I like that song a lot. Just the words of it. Good job. Good job. Good job, Bridget. Way to be. <laughs> um, if if you haven't been with us in a couple weeks, uh, we are in a series called "Remain in Love." As you can see behind me, um, again, I say it every week that we've been in this series. It's not so much about relationship with people as our relationship with God, but that affects our relationship with people. And so we're we're commanded throughout Scripture to remain or to abide, to dwell, to continuously cling, live where God is and with God and where God wants us to be. And because we live in this world and we all struggle with sin, we kind of move off of that path at times and we find ourselves in sticky situations, situations we don't really want to be in and we're not very proud of. So we're walking through this series to not only see how God commands us uh, to do this, but also the benefits of doing it in our life and the things we will see as we remain in love. We began in Psalms uh, several weeks ago about it begins by first we've got to change our focus, our attention, what we're focusing on. Um, you know, there's struggles all around us. There's things in your life that probably uh, make you frustrated. There's probably people in your life that frustrate you. If you don't have people in your life that, that frustrate you, then wow, good you, unless you're like, just keep yourself. But um, I mean, there's people that just get on our nerves sometimes. And so how do I remain where God wants me to be and be doing what God wants me to be doing when all this stuff is going on? And so it's really a matter of changing our focus and focusing more on, on God than the situation. Let God do whatever God's doing in that situation in our life or in those people's lives. And last week, we talked about how remain love. One of the purposes is that we bear fruit. We are image bearers of Christ, image bearers of God. If we call ourselves a Christian, that's what it implies, is that as I go about my life, I'm showing Christ. Christ is just coming out of me. You know, he's the light of the world, but now the light is inside of me, and now I'm commanded to be the light to the world. And so Christ is just continuously coming out, and I'm bearing fruit, uh, Christ-like fruit, so people know I belong to him. Matter of fact, we talked about last week that that's actually how people know that we are disciples, we belong to Jesus, that we're bearing fruit according to Jesus Christ. We are performing as biblical Christians. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me back again to John chapter 15. We were there last week. We're going to be there again today. In John chapter 15, uh, we're going to begin in verse 9 here in a moment. Uh, the Gospel of John is written by the Apostle John, and he wrote this one that bears his name, and also the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he talks most out of all of the Gospels about this idea of remaining in Christ and abiding in Christ and being where Christ wants us to be. And just as a reminder, in chapter 15, Jesus is preparing his disciples uh, for the time where he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, uh, he's going to rise from the grave, but eventually he's going to ascend and he's going to hand the mission, God's mission to them, that they are going to carry this mission that Christ has brought. And so in John 15, we're entering into the upper room. John, the Gospel of John, holds the longest recording of the upper room of any Gospels. And Jesus is telling his disciples, okay, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to be prepared for. You, and you need to remain in me. And today we're going to see how to do that, what we can expect uh, when we remain in Christ, but also the thing that can keep us from remaining in Christ. And so if you want to begin with me in verse 9 of chapter 15. And Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full or may be complete. The driving force of remaining in love or remaining in God is this. It's very simple. God loves us. It's the love of God. Why would I remain in, in love? Why would I do the things God wants us to do? Why would I live my life a certain way? Why would I bear fruit according to Christ? Why would I continuously focus and trust and commit my way to God? It's because God loves you. It's that simple. But we can overlook it so much because we sing about it. You know, we tell our kids about it. We have songs about God's love. And we, we know God loves us, but we really need to, to hone in this for a second. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God is all-powerful, all-knowing, the God who's going to judge every single individual on this planet someday, loves you. He loves you more than anybody will ever love you and more than we will ever be able to imagine on this side of eternity. But one day, if we have accepted Jesus Christ, we will stand before the loving Heavenly Father and we'll be in awe of how much God, in fact, loved us, how much He put up with some of our stuff, right? God loves you, and the driving force to abide, to remain, has to be the love of God and the love for God. And the reason I say that, because if we are doing it for any other reason, we can make it into a form of legalism. You know, we can go to church simply because that's the thing you're supposed to do as a Christian, or maybe someone drug you. We can read your Bible or study your Bible because that's what the preacher or the teacher or somebody in your life told you. You should, you should do that. That's a good thing for you to do. We can throw money into the offering plate because, well, we don't want anybody else to think we're not giving to the church, and so we, you know, we'll throw some in there. We can sing songs because, well, Jackson told us to stand up and sing, and the words are up there, and so uh, we'll at least make our mouth move, right? I don't know if you do that during worship or not. But you know, we can do all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons is what I'm getting at. And if the love of God and the love for God is not the driving force of us remaining in Him, we'll do it for all the wrong reasons. And we'll think we're actually accomplishing something. When I was a teenager, my dad was a pastor, and when I was a teenager, um, about 15 probably, um, I really started seeing things within the church that uh, affected me because I was doing things for the wrong reasons. You know, I was, I was in Bible study. I was at church every single Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, you just, as a PK, that's where you, you're supposed to be, I guess. And so my dad would take me. I would even have to go to business meetings as a teenager. Let me tell you how much fun that was. Um, and so I was there, and I was doing all the things. I would stand when the worship leader said, stand and let's sing. I would, you know, you all remember hymn books? Yeah. Uh, they would say, you turn the page, whatever, and I turned that page, and I would, I would know the tune, so I would sing along with it. And some of those hymns I had memorized. Yeah. Uh, I, I had my Bible. I brought my Bible to church like a good Christian would, and I sat there in the pew. And when my dad said, okay, we're going to be in this passage, I would turn there, and I would stare at my dad while he talked for I don't know, sometimes feel like an eternity. I hope you don't feel that way about me. But I mean, and I would just stare at it and I would, I would go through all the motions of worship. Even as a teenager at times, I would throw a couple bucks in the off-door plate and I'd be like, hey, look at me giving to God. And as I was doing that, everyone thought it looked like I had things together. 
oh, he's such a good guy. He's such a good Christian. You know, he's always at church. He's always, he always dresses for church and he looks like a church person, a good, what a good Christian would do. And he's in the pews and he's singing songs and he's standing when he's supposed to stand and sit. Supposed to sit. He even bows his head and closes his eyes when we pray. I know that because I look around. You know, I mean, and so I was doing all this stuff and about 14, 15 years of age, I, I was doing the stuff and everyone, you know, was so proud of who I was as a Christian. But I started noticing there were, there were some older teenagers in the church and they were doing everything I was doing, but they were also doing some worldly things. And one of the ways that really woke me up one day is we were bowing to pray. One of, uh, he was a senior that year. I won't say his name, but he sat down right by me. And as soon as he sat, this whiff of last night came off of him. And, and I thought, I mean, he's a senior and everybody says he's got it all together. And yet I know he's having this party life, this worldly life. And and yet no one seems to care because he's here. He has his Bible and he's doing all the stuff you should do. And so from that point on, it really affected me that I started flirting with things of the world. And it was a dangerous slope because I did everything everyone thought I should do, but because my focus was not on loving God and responding to the love of God, but simply doing things, having our spiritual checklist of righteousness, simply doing things, I eventually started drifting away from God. I did not remain in Him. I made church and Christianity all about going through the motions. I played it. And you can play church. You can fool me. You can fool the people sitting in your row. You can fool anybody, but you will not fool God. He knows exactly where your heart is. He knows exactly why you do what you do. He knows exactly why you're here. He knows exactly what you're going to do after today. And so our driving force to remain in God has to be love, because if you look back in John chapter 15, Jesus says, Father, love me. I have also loved you. So remain my love. God loves Jesus, Jesus loves you, God loves you, and because God loves us, we now love. And then see what happens. The evidence of you remaining in the love of God, the evidence of you loving God back, is that you keep my commandments. It says, verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands remains love. And this is why I said love has to be the fuel because we can easily turn this into spiritual checklist. God will love you whether you are obedient or not. God loves you even though you struggle and wrestle with sin. He, he can do nothing but love you. But the reality is the way we show we love God is that we are obedient. And to be obedient to God is to simply trust God. That's the simplest way to put it. It is to simply trust God knows what he's talking about concerning your and my life. And it's not so I can say, well, look what I did or look what I'm not doing. It's simply saying that I trust God, that God actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to the things in my life I should or shouldn't be doing. And so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to have faith in him. But the reality is many of us don't. And that's what leads, leads to sin, and that's what detaches us and doesn't keep us in remaining in God. So Jesus says that if you, if you keep the commands, then you remain in his love. And this is, this is why, verse 11, look there. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. Your joy may be complete. Now, when you think of Jesus, I wonder what things come to your mind. 
Now, I grew up in, you know, very traditional Southern Baptist churches. Um, and so I remember, like, Sunday school, you would have those. Remember those big pictures that came with the Sunday school packets? They're like the paintings or things like that. And there would always be, like, whatever story you're talking about. And I always remember Jesus in there was always, you know, doing this. But it seemed like every church I've ever been in, except for this one, um, there was always, you remember the, the senior picture of Jesus where he's staring off to the right? <laughs> do you remember that picture? Some of y'all do. And, and, and so I remember Jesus and that, I mean, he was always so, so serious. I mean, he always, he's always, you know, whatever this was. I mean, and the, the thing that changed my, my mind about Jesus, I saw this drawing of Jesus just busting out laughing. And I thought, I bet that's the most accurate picture or drawing I've seen of him. Jesus says here that, I've told you things, that my joy, you hear that? Jesus had joy. He was a joyful guy. People, I mean, that makes sense because people wanted to be around him, right? He says that my joy may be in you and your joy may be be complete. Now, why did Jesus have joy? Because Jesus was completely obedient to the Father. Jesus understood that God loved him. And Jesus understood that he, God wanted other people to know that he loved them. And because Jesus trusted God, that God knew what he was doing, even this plan that was going to send him to a cross, he trusted God to death. And in trusting God in every aspect, he was filled with joy because he knew exactly where he was supposed to be, exactly where God wanted him to be, and exactly what God wanted him to be doing. And he says, I've got joy with the Father. And I go to the cross with joy because I know that's God's plan for me. And I want you to have the joy that I have. And you may be complete and be full. That, that, that wording there in verse 11, that you may be complete, means not just to the brim, but your joy is just overflowing, coming out of you. And that's the promise when we remain in love, when we remain obedient to God, not, not, again, not just a checklist, but just because, God, we trust you and we know we love you and we want to respond in our life as a life of love towards you. And when we do that, we have joy. So what zaps our joy is living in disobedience. And to see how this works, if you want to work your way back to the book of Psalms real quick, In Psalm chapter 37, or not 37, 32. Psalm 32 is written by a guy named David. We've we've heard David before. Um, David had a heart for God, um, but David was also a sinner. He did some things in life he wasn't proud of. We don't know what this particular psalm was written about. It's, It's something in David's life he's looking back upon something that happened where he lived outside of the will of God, outside of being obedient to God. Okay, he he was looking back at a sin he had. And in Psalm chapter 32, look at verse 1 and 2. It says, How joyful is the one whose transgression, transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. See, David, come back to this understanding that for us to have the joy of the Lord, it begins with forgiveness. I have to be forgiven. 
And for David's life, it was the act of sacrifice, having to go to the, the, the tabernacle and offer sacrifices for his sin. For us, it is through Jesus Christ. We can only find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He is the only atoning sacrifice. And so we find forgiveness in Christ and we get this joy that Jesus had inside of us because we are now seen before God no longer as a sinner, but as a saint. All of our past has gone away and the new has come. We are a new creation. That's the promise of Scripture. But if you look at this, what David is looking back in Psalm 32 is a moment in time where he was living in disobedience and understanding that that zapped his joy. He, did, he was not living in joyful worship towards God, but he, look in verse 3, he says, when I kept silent, meaning when I had this thing in my life and I, I said nothing about it, I did nothing about it, my bones became brittle and, my, and from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me and my strength was drained in the summer's heat then, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. So what's going on? David had something in his life, something that was keeping him from experiencing the joy of the Lord in his life, and it was just wearing on him. And that's what sin does. We have to be aware that sin, disobedience to God, disrupts everything. It disrupts our relationship with God. It disrupts our relationship with the people we love most. It disrupts our unity with one another. It disrupts our joy of the Lord. It disrupts the spirit working inside of us. It disrupts us, our ability to follow our shepherd to where he wants us to be. It disrupts everything. Sin is a disruptor. And David's saying, my life was so disrupted, I couldn't sleep. I felt like spiritually ill. I felt your hand upon me. What was David going through? Conviction. God was convicting him. See, the, the road to joy is the road to forgiveness, but the road to forgiveness is spiritually painful because it begins with conviction. We have to feel the weight of God upon us for the sin we've had in our life. And even though we don't like it, the Bible tells us God convicts us. He disciplines us because we are his children. And if he didn't discipline us, we would be illegitimate children. And so God comes in our life and though we don't like it, he brings these things, these heavy weights upon our hearts and our soul that makes us feel brittle. It makes us groan and ache. It makes us uncomfortable. And it should. Sin should make a believer, a child of God, uncomfortable. And that's zapping your joy. But the beauty of it is just because your joy gets zapped doesn't mean it has to be lost. See, David, he became convicted. That's what he's talking about in verse 3. And again, we don't know what it was. Maybe it was his incident with Bathsheba. Maybe it was the way he handled his son Absalom. Maybe it was the way he, he handled the situation with Saul. We don't know what it was, but there was something in his past. He's looking back on it and saying, you know what? I saw that. I see it now that it was wearing on me. It made me groan. It was making me weak. And it was just uncomfortable. Sin should make a believer, a child of God, uncomfortable. We it just because it disrupts stuff. So David says, I was convicted. And then what does he do in verse five? Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What did he do? See, when conviction comes, here's the response. We have to respond. Some people call it confession. Now, we, we don't, 
necessarily have confession so much, but we have to respond. We, David said, you know what? I understood you were right. I am wrong. And now I'm going to repent because I am convicted. I am guilty. I'm going to repent and I'm going to get back to where I'm supposed to be by confessing my iniquity, by confessing my wrong. And I know this scares us half to death because if we had a service, you know, the whole service, we're just going to allow everyone to come up and confess their sins out loud. How many of us would show up that Sunday? I got to go somewhere. I mean, it makes us nervous. And here's why. There's two things fighting when it comes to us confessing. We have to understand conviction to confessing gets us back to the joy that gives us complete joy. And those two things are fear and pride. Fear and pride will keep us confessing. Now, we'll confess to God because God already knows everything, right? We'll tell God, yes, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. We'll tell God. But do you know that God puts an emphasis on us confessing to people? Matter of fact, Jesus spoke in the gospel of Matthew that if you have something wrong with your neighbor or your brother, you don't come to the altar. First, you go and get that matter settled, that matter situation. Then you bring your offering to the altar. God is more concerned with our relationship with one another because, yes, we will easily confess to God because he knows all things. But the reality is our sin disrupts our relationships with people. And so we have to mend those relationships. That's how we remain in love. That's how we remain in God. Because if, if I have something going on between me and my wife am I, and it's not good, am I going to have joy? It's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope... You know, she doesn't call me out on it. I'm going to hope she doesn't find out about it. And so that joy I'm supposed to have is now I'm, I'm hiding things in the secret. And the reason that we don't go and confess to people is one is fear and the other is pride. The pride is in who we think we are or who we think they think we are. And if we go and we say, you know what, I did this wrong. I, I, I didn't tell you the truth. I've been hiding this behind your back. We, we have this sense of pride that I will have to humble myself and I don't want to do that. And then we have fear. We have fear. How will they respond? You ever felt like you needed to go apologize to someone or go tell someone that you did something wrong and there was that fear? Oh, man, what are they going to think? How are they going to respond? How are they going to see me? Are they going to hate me now? So fear and pride keeps us from doing what God commands to do. And we have sin in our life that is disrupting our ability to remain in love and disrupting the, the possibility of us having joy in our life. It comes down, am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust God? But look there again in, in 32. Verse 6, he says, Therefore let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great flood waters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. David understood, despite maybe his pride, I mean, this was the king of Israel. This was the greatest, one of the greatest generals Israel ever had. But David understood that he had to get past his pride. He had to get past his fear. And he had to come before God and humbly submit and say, God, I was wrong. I messed up. I sinned. And, and confessing that to God so that he could have the forgiveness that God wants to give him. And when he got that forgiveness, when he went through the conviction and the confession and received forgiveness, the end result was joy. I'm willing to guess 
that if you're here this morning and you're not experienced the joy of the Lord, it's because there's something in your life that God has been convicting you about that needs to get out. Maybe it's the way you treat a coworker. Maybe it's the way you're acting in a relationship that you shouldn't be acting that way. Maybe it's your thoughts towards another individual. Maybe it's some sort of weekend activities. You can fool me. You can do all the right things and do it all for the wrong reasons. The key is love. God loves you. And the only reason he brings conviction is because he wants to take that out so that you can experience his joy. Are you going to trust him? See, conviction isn't just for unbelievers, it's for believers too. It's the way God continues to mold and transform us into his likeness. So my question this morning, has there been something in your life God has been continuously coming and trying to draw out, convicting, and, and you've just been spiritually uncomfortable, but you know you've got to trust God in this moment? Would you be willing to come and lay that at his feet? Here's the greatness of it. There's nothing you're doing that God is going to be surprised by. You could come down and pray something before the Father, and he's not going to say, wow, I didn't see that coming. He knows all about you, and he loves you. He loves you, and so he calls us now to respond because he loves us. We're going to show we trust him, we love him back. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a child of the king yet. And if you're not a child of the king, that means you, you, there's no way you can have these promises of God in your life because you're still in your sin. You're separated from God. The Bible tells us that sin separates us from God, not only in this life, but into the next. And if that sin problem is not taken care of, we're going to hell. But because, again, God loves you. He's for you, not against you. Because he loves you, he sent his son Jesus to die for us and take our sin, take God's wrath upon himself that we wouldn't be punished simply by trusting God, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And the Bible says that we do that. We believe that God loves us that much. No matter what I bring to the table, God loves me and I want God's gift of love in my life. The Bible says when I believe it, I have to confess it. I have to make it be known. So as we come this time of invitation, maybe you're here and you know you're not saved. And if this was your last day on earth, you know you'd be going to hell. Well, God wants to change that right now. But it starts with you. You've got to get past your fear, get past your pride. You've got to be willing to step out and come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus Christ in my life. I want to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a child of God and God's just been working on you about something, but you've been unwilling to let it go. My question this morning would you trust him? Would you trust him? And whatever that is, just to let it go at the Father's feet. However God is upon, I'm going to ask Jackson to come and lead us in a moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you you want us to have joy. Lord, I thank you you give us the spirit to produce joy out of our life. Lord, I thank you your son was a joyful guy. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for everything you're doing in our life, in the life of this church. And Lord, as we come to this time of invitation, Father, you know I'm a mess at times. And I ask your forgiveness. Forgive me when I haven't been living the way you want me to live and doing what you want me to do 
and I, I am so out of whack. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I come before you and ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning as you've spoken to my heart all this week and just what you've laid upon people's hearts this morning, that you make us be responders in this moment. Father, fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with your mercy. Let us just step into your loving arms and to trust you in this moment. For anyone who's here this morning who, who doesn't know you, is not a child of yours, I ask you just give them the courage to step out. To walk down the aisle and let it be known that they want you in their life. Well, I thank you for loving us. Let love be the fuel of everything we do here at Harvest Hill, everything we do in, in our life. It's to love you and to love the people you put around us. Forgive us if we made it about anything else. Just come this time of invitation, Lord. Lead us to where we need to be. Praise in your son's name.